You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs and cryptocurrencies. For today's episode, we had a chance to interview Liam Bussell from Banksup, which is a payment service provider based in Melbourne, Australia, that provides payment solutions to some of the largest exchanges in the crypto space, such as Binance, Shapeshift, OKX, and many others. Liam is a seasoned marketing leader with 18 years of experience building tech and fintech companies, and is currently head of corporate communications and investor relations at Banksup. We had a chance to talk to Liam about his vast experience and get an overview of the various aspects of regulations that are key to the whole blockchain and crypto industry going forward. Once again, a quick disclaimer. All things that you hear on the show are just personal opinions of the speakers and not meant to be taken as any kind of financial or legal advice. With that, let's have a listen to our interview with Liam. Liam, a very warm welcome to you from Nikhil and myself. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Nicole. Chris, it's really good to actually uh, speak to you again. I'm really, really looking forward to this. I think it'll be good. Yeah, welcome, Liam. Thanks. So to start off, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and how you got into blockchain and cryptocurrencies? Yeah, of course. Um I mean, it's a funny story, really. I'm a I'm a sort of lifetime marketeer, and my last couple of roles, I've been at a fairly senior level, either CMO or, or regional head of marketing. And I, I started in financial services, and then in uh, 2015, I moved to Hong Kong from China. I was living in China. Uh, I'm originally Australian, but uh, I was based in Asia for a long time. Um, I, I worked first for a, a cross-border payments forex company called World First. Uh, and at that stage, you know, that that was really when a lot of Chinese manufacturers started selling on Amazon in the US. Amazon opened that market. So if you were making T-shirts or phone chargers, you could sell them on Amazon directly, get paid in US dollars. How would you get that money back to China? Um, at, at the time, we were looking at Bitcoin as a way to do that. But the market, like we would, we did 40 billion US dollars worth of flow in a year. And if we were buying that much Bitcoin, in the US and then moving it, we, we were actually going to impact the price because the volumes were so low and we were worried about the ability to do it. But that was probably my first real business introduction to sort of crypto. I had been in China before that and a, a friend of mine had actually gotten divorced and had to sleep on my couch and he paid me with three Bitcoin. And at that price, I think they were $185, something like that. I had those Bitcoin for a long time. Um, after World First, I was uh, I went to work for a company called ANX. Um, ANX is now listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and is called BC Group. Um, when I joined them, they were a cryptocurrency exchange, but the real strength of that team and that company is um, they had an amazing CTO, a guy called Hugh Madden, who's is actually very well known in industry. Um, and the head of operations was a guy called Dave Chapman, who's also sort of ex-banker and very well known in the industry. Um, his his little side project and the business he built up is called Octagon Strategy, now called OSL. And that's probably definitely the largest OTC crypto uh, business in Asia and possibly like one of the top couple in the world. 
Um, when I first started there, uh, Octagon was two guys in a windowless room. Uh, they're both still there, um, Fernando and Ryan. So that's now a company of 50, 70 people. They've taken $10 million from Fidelity. Like they're a legitimate company. Um, but Hugh ran a very tight ship. He came out of banking and he had a very strong development team, right? And they were classic tech startup. You know, they would spin up a product where they saw an opportunity and maybe it wouldn't work out. Um, the commercial guy on that side was a guy called Ken Lowe. Ken's also very well regarded in the industry. and He's a very good hustler and very entrepreneurial. Um, so when I joined, I came in, they had a senior, they had a, a lot of marketeers, but they're all junior people. So I was hired in to sort of be the adult in the room. And the reason that it happened is because they'd spun up so many of these projects and products, you know, so they had the crypto exchange, they were doing white label and blockchain development. They had the uh, OTC business, which was just starting up. They were trying to set up a competitor to coin market cap, the website mm -hmm. focused on Asia. So they had a lot of things and they had marketeers kind of working on stuff all over the place. And uh, I came on board and my job is to sort of build strategy. So I work with Ken and, and Hugh on that. And then after about two, three months, they said, this is 2017. So it was just the beginning of the bull market. They said, we're going to do an ICO. And to be honest, my understanding of, of that market was pretty limited. The only one that I really knew about was the Dow, uh, the Ethereum Dow. And so, you know, I did a lot of reading um, and ran an ICO. Um, and as part of my professional career, you know, it's one of the periods of my life where I've actually worked the hardest. Um, we had a marketing team of 15, but we pulled a, probably five people off, including myself, to, to focus pretty much exclusively on the ICO. I had a couple of really good community guys, uh, a couple of really good social media guys, and we just learned, you know, by making mistakes. You know, uh, we spent a probably all in like $1.2 million US dollars over the course of four months, right? That was PR, marketing, community management, all that, and we raised 20. Um, and so that was pretty good at that stage. You know, Bancor was around at that stage, so they were still doing big numbers, but we did okay. Um, very successful. We had about 18,000 investors. Um, and, you know, that, that was my baptism of fire, really, in this the, the front, the, the sharp end of the cryptocurrency market, right? Like the marketing, the pump and dumps, all that sort of stuff. Um, I was at BC Group, then called ANX, for about two years, about a year and a half after the, um, the ICO. The ICO was called OAX, and it's a decentralized exchange. It's still around. Um, ANX, that, that project, even though they didn't raise a huge amount of money, it was crucial in the Asian market, right? Because... They had a guy called Bok Koo, who's an Australian sort of blockchain developer. Uh, he runs a website called Crypto Derivatives. So he wrote the smart contract. That's a public, you know, that's a, you can find that smart contract on GitHub. And there were like at least a half a dozen other sales who literally just copied that smart contract. Um, at the same time we ran, the crypto.com ICO ran, right? They were called Monaco first, the card company. Oh, yeah. yeah, so they that was Chris and those guys, we were like, we were at the same conferences, you know, pitching to the same people, trying to attract the same investors. Um, mm -hmm. We we got very lucky. We partnered with a guy who's who's now pretty much on the west coast of the US, Chinese guy called Chandler Guo. Chandler was very, very, very connected in the Chinese crypto scene at that time. Um, so he helped us get uh, sort of access to Chinese investors. And obviously, that that's not something you can really do now. Um so yeah, I was there for two years and then I was headhunted out of there to be recruited as employee number seven for a company called Diginex. Diginex is now listed on the NASDAQ and they've changed their name recently to Equinex. Equinex, yeah. Um, Equos, E-Q-U-O-S or, or U-S is the, is the stock ticker. 
Um, so I came on board as employee number seven. That was a very different blockchain company, right? So the senior team there, Miles Pelham, Richard Byworth, a bunch of these guys all came out of the investment banking space, right? Um, they were very, very smart at very senior level, coming from like convertible bonds, equities, trading desks. So they looked at crypto and the whole space and they were like, there's a lot of potential here, but it's very much the Wild West, right? There's no regulation. So if we come in and position ourselves as the adult in the room, um, that, that will be a long-term sustainable position. And that's kind of proven true for them, right? They've gone through the listing. They're doing quite well. They've got a probably, I don't know, one of the half dozen regulated securities tokens exchanges in the world. They have a custody business called Digivolt out of the UK, which I know later on, you, one of the things you wanted to talk about was sandboxes. Right. Uh, you know, Digivolt went through that in the, uh, went through that in the UK. Um, so yeah, that is a very interesting market. I came on as employee number seven. I was, I sort of wore two hats because I'd been involved in an ICO and one of the businesses was to sort of approach the black blockchain space, like an investment bank. Um, we had, a, we were looking for a lot of products to, to consult with and help them do their, their, their token sale. So we would do technical stuff. There's a guy called Jose Perez, who was the head of innovation, who was very, very good on the like coding and blockchain side, um, really loves the technology. And I, I learned a lot from him. And, um, you know, so we would help guys find smart contracts. We would advise them on how to think about their treasury management, all that types of stuff. So I was the product manager for sort of the ICO part of the business, which then became the STO part of the business when security tokens got hot. Uh, I was on global digital finance, which I'm sure you guys have talked about on, on a, a previous episode or mentioned mm -hmm. um, the GDF is a bigger organization. I was on the security token working group for a while um, and, and Diginex at that stage, just thought about things very, very differently. There was not that many companies thinking about where the regulation and compliance was going to go at that stage. Um, they brought in a guy called Malcolm Wright, who was the head of compliance. Uh, they had a, a really strong legal team. And that was just the way that they did it. They just approached it and essentially copied the DNA of how an investment bank would approach it. Um, I was there for a couple of years. I finished up towards the end of 2019, early 2020. Um, I was thinking about getting out of Hong Kong. Uh, I was looking around. Um, we sort of reached an agreement for me to leave. And then, of course, coronavirus kicked off, which is not, not something that you can really predict. Um, for various reasons, I moved back to Australia. And right as I was sort of leaving Hong Kong and I made that decision, um, for a brief period, about three, four months, I, I was doing some editing and writing work for Cointelegraph because I've done a lot of communications in my time. And uh, so that sort of gave me exposure to the other side of the market. Um, as I landed in Australia, while I was still in my two weeks quarantine, I started working for the company I work for now, Banksa. So Banksa is very similar in approach to Diginex, but very different structurally. Um, as in, you know, we're a payment service provider for the digital asset space, right? How do people get into and get out of crypto? Do they use credit card? Do they do bank transfer? How do they do that safely? Um, so I joined in September. At that stage, my real focus was around the company listing on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So I, I ran as a sort of the head of investor relations. So my job was to do outreach and communications to potential investors, um, comply with what the TSX wanted to say and not say. You know, you obviously can't be over the top on your marketing and all that type of stuff. Um, we had a very successful IPO on the 6th of Jan this year. Um, subsequent to that, I, I've sort of moved out and my remit has expanded. So I'm still the head of investor relations, but I also look after corporate communications as well. Um, and, and in that regard, Banksa is very similar to Diginex because the 
the Bankster team used to run a bunch of retail websites called bitcoin.com.au, bitcoin.ca, which is a Canadian one, bitcoin.co.uk. Um, and they were doing retail sales. Like you turn up on the website with your credit card, you purchase $400 of Bitcoin. And at that stage, when they started in 2014, 2015, you know, banks hated crypto. I mean, they still don't like it, but they hated it at that stage. So the, the Bitcoin.com.au guys that would become the banks of team, they learned all those lessons that I learned during the ICO, right? How do you, um, how do you arbitrage, make sure you've got a couple of different bank accounts in case there's an issue? You know, how do you manage that? How do you do compliance? At that stage, Australia was probably one of the leading jurisdictions in blockchain adoption. It's probably changed a bit now. But they were pretty quick at that stage to, to really look at the space and put some regulation regulation in place. So the banks, the guys went through that whole process and they thought about long term strategically, how are you going to get growth in this market and get ma mainstream acceptance? And really where they settled was around complying with regulation and being transparent. So that's it probably went longer than you thought. But uh, that, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Nice. Uh, so actually, uh, uh, jumping into that exploration into DigiNex and Banksa and the differences between uh, and and your ICO experience, if you look at it, uh, you know there are you, uh, at a, at a broad level, right? There are three kind of different types of uh, companies that kind of work in the blockchain space, right? So you have things like the ICO and the whole concept of companies that are like entirely in blockchain, right? So fully mm. decentralized. Everything has to be decentralized. You have a, a digital autonomous organization. Everything is uh, consensus-based, et cetera, et cetera. And then mm -hmm. you have the uh, centralized finance companies, which basically, like, they, they're working in the blockchain space, but it's a single uh, development team, and there is a central control, and uh, it's basically they are running the show, but... Uh, the the technology is on the blockchain and it is decentralized. And yeah. then you have the companies that basically, uh, so even in the centralized finance companies, you have the two which one ones which are basically run through venture capital and the traditional startup and it's private and all of that. And mm -hmm. then you have companies like yours, uh, yours like uh, DigiNex and Banksa, which have gone through the public listing and have gone and become stock and IPO'd and all of that, right? Yeah. So uh, from that perspective, what what is the differentiation in terms of uh, regulations? Do you feel that, okay, mm. uh, this, this whole idea of embracing de uh, decentralization and being a DAO and all of that can really work within a regulatory framework? Uh, or do you think that at some point uh, everybody needs to actually you know, get listed in a mark in in a, in a stock exchange and kind of have that connection to uh, the fiat currency and fiat world. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, and I think there's sort of two competing narratives, which I'll, I'll just sort of provide for context quickly. Right, the crypto space really took off post global financial crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And at that stage, it was all technology. Right. You know, coders, developers, all these guys, you know, they looked at the Bitcoin white paper. They went, oh, this is, looks pretty amazing. Um, and, and that piece of the market still exists. Right. There is still guy. I used to work with a guy called uh, Andres, who's a developer. You know, he was largely living his entire life in Bitcoin. Right. Like most mm -hmm. of his assets are in Bitcoin. You know, he doesn't care 
about listing companies, right? But there's always going to be 10, 15% of the market where a lot of the really crazy innovation takes place, which is probably never going to get really regulated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine, you know, Mimble Wimble, all these types of like crazy things that just get built on a GitHub and it's a bunch of guys working together. That's really the innovation. That's the, the, the pointy end of the, st- the spear in terms of innovation. Right. Once you start to get bigger and you start to think about, like I'm now dealing with hundreds of thousands of customers, um, you start to get more centralized, right? And that's just logical because you've got to start to put systems in place to control how you scale and how you control processes, right? So for example, at Banksa, we work across multiple jurisdictions, so we have to obviously comply with regulations, right? So is that anti-money laundering, KYC, all those types of things. Once you start to do that, you're complying with some sort of regulation, right? Now, that's the venture capital piece that you sort of talked about, but I think that there's, there's, you know, even at that stage, those companies have to put in place controls. And what happens if they don't is you have what happened in 2018, 2019, where in the ICO boom, you had hundreds of companies raise millions and millions of dollars. And where are those guys now? Like a lot of those guys have just vaporized, right? There's still a few around, but, um, you know, they raised $20 million and they, you know, all their senior team turned up at consensus in New York and they probably ran a cocktail event and then the price of Bitcoin crashed and they didn't have good treasury management. So half of what they raised was vaporized. Whereas other people manage that much more effectively and they are now sustainable long-term companies. You need controls. You're taking money off people, right? Right. Um, I, I think once you take money off people, there's an obligation for you to, to act mature. Um, and we've seen what happens when that doesn't. Once you start to think about it a bit more sort of capital markets focused, and, and my thinking largely about this was shaped by a, a guy I worked with at DigitX, um, a guy called Adam Barker, who's the chief the head of strategy. He's one of the smartest guys I've ever worked with in my career. But, you know, the reason you want to be on capital markets in a publicly listed company is you have access to way more capital, right? If you want to go out and issue more shares and raise money to grow your business or to acquire other businesses to scale, right? And everyone understands why scaling is good, right? P- push your cost down, your efficiency in your process. That is easier in in publicly listed markets, right? There's certain requirements for you to become publicly listed in terms of, you know, technically if you mismanage funds, your senior team can get arrested, they can be charged. Um, If you're in that centralized finance piece, so that's sort of the middle of the three stages, you still have some requirements, but you know, it's that old sort of joke, you know, about ICOs. What you do is you, you get your nonprofit foundation set up in Switzerland or Malta, you know, their common jurisdictions or Liechtenstein, somewhere like that, right. Singapore, and they hold the $20, $50 million you raised and, and they pay you to build the thing that they're supposed to build that you talked about in the white paper. And like, that's a cheeky way to sort of show that you have separation of church and state and sort of where the money is sitting versus where the work is being done. Mm-hmm. But like, that that model has never really been properly attacked by a regulator, right? Like the SEC has not come super heavy after any of those guys to really see that. The, the, the example that I would probably quote, and I didn't want to mention them specifically, but it's just the only one on the top of my head, EOS, right? EOS did a massive sale. Um, they raised, what, $4 billion? Right. And it was a very interesting sale because they sold a certain allocation every day. Right. There's already questions about why you would structure your sale that way. Um, well, one, what sort of businesses generate lots of capital on a day to day basis and may want to buy into a cryptocurrency that's very hard to track? 
I'm not going to point you in any particular directions, but I have <laughs> heard people tell me that like, if you wanted an ICO to look like a money laundering opportunity, that's a pretty good way to structure it, right? I'm not saying that the EOS guys did that, but you know, that opens up that question. Um, they raised 4 billion and right now they're worth what, three, maybe 3.4. So they've clearly written off $600 million at some point, right? Um, so did they have the right controls? I know for a fact that the sale document that they put together from a legalistic point of view is very strong, right? In terms of you weren't really mm -hmm. buying anything. This is just a theoretical asset. You own the token. If the token has no value, that's really on you. There's a very strong sale document, but they still got stung, right? They had to, still had to settle with the SEC. Yeah. And the SEC only has a certain amount of hours in the day and a certain amount of lawyers at their, uh, at their beck and call. So. There's thousands of these sales. They have to pick some, and you would have to assume that if they're going to pick some, they're probably going to start with the biggest one. Then they're probably going to start with the ones that use, you know, testimonials or famous people. So, you know, those are the ones that are going to get uh, get the attention of a regulator. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more detail around Coinbase, right? You know, yeah, while they're definitely yeah. not one of those companies, they have very good controls, but you know, they're on the regulator's radar because they're big. Right. Um, so to go back to just finish the, the thought around the three different types, I think it's really good for innovation to keep five, ten percent of those companies private. They raise money through crowd sourcing, whatever you want to call it. Um, they they just build stuff, right? Because that's where interesting stuff happens. Then once you get to a certain size and you've taken money off people, you do need controls in place. So that's the C five bit, right? Mm -hmm. And then finally. If you are looking to be in this industry long term and you're trying to tick all the boxes from the point of view of serious investors coming to talk to you or, or to scale your company globally in multiple jurisdictions, you probably need to think about regulators while you're building your roadmap. Makes sense. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great, great overview. Uh, thanks, Liam. No problem. Before we uh, jump into, you know, all about banks, uh, I just wanted to mention on a, on a more lighthearted note. Uh, in, in one of our previous conversations, uh, you mentioned that you have a pretty strong bullshit detector, you know, when it comes to <laughs> looking at various crypto projects. Uh, and yeah. we can't emphasize enough, you know, how valuable a skill it is to have, you know, when you're working in this industry. So uh, so I, I was basically going to ask you a question that, you know, what has sure. been your learning, you know, in these past few years and, you know. Well, I mean, I can, I can drill in on that a, a little bit if you want. I won't, I won't go on a sure. ramble too much. But, you know, uh, the baptism of fire what was the the oax ico right because as soon as you start to do that and you go out and you're starting to like build your telegram channels you'll start getting people saying hey we can do community management you know two-thirds of these people back in the day would over promise and under deliver um right then you know that was just i understood that at the end of the sale and then i went to diginex and i wore a hat where i was looking at projects and for my sins in my two years there i ended up to a large extent being kind of a gatekeeper for projects that wanted to work with us or wanted to come to us for investment or any of those types of things. Um, so I would get the white papers at conferences or through contacts and I would read them. And then if I thought they were any good, I would send them up the chain. And so probably in that two years, I read at least, probably I received about 400. I probably read like a hundred, right? And, and you just, you start to see certain keywords and, you know, the more grandiose they are, you're like, oh, okay, can, is this actually deliverable? Um, so yeah, for me, it, 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 I've learned the hard way. I mean, I think I've always been a little bit cynical. I'm optimistic about the space overall. And I do believe that the whole financial sector could really do with the type of improvement that blockchain would, would add, right? 
uh, around transparency and you know immutable records, all those types of things. I think if that got integrated into the traditional financial system, it would probably be a benefit for everyone. But I think that crazy 15% of the developers who are building crazy stuff, for every one of them, there's probably three people who are just trying to make some money, right? So they're selling community services. Oh, I can be an advisor on your project. There's a lot of BS in the market. And yeah, it's just there. It's getting better, but uh, it's still around for sure. Great. So uh, with that, let's uh, move on to the company that you're currently working with, that is Banksa. Uh, Sure. So Banksa is a payment service provider. And uh, from what we understand, Banksa provides a fiat to crypto on and off ramp solution for various crypto exchanges. So uh, your clients include like Binance, Shapeshift, OKX, and many others. Mm. So uh, could you explain for our audience uh, what a payment service provider is, uh, where it fits within the value chain of crypto payments, and Mm. what is your business model uh, as a company? Yeah, I mean, okay, so there's a couple of things there to unpack. So the first thing is, you know, back in the day, lots of people talked about the infrastructure layer, right, in in blockchain. So when they were building Ethereum, there's the infrastructure layer, and then people were building dApps on top. So I really think, and and largely in the company, I think as well, we think about being the infrastructure layer for mass adoption, right? That payments piece, how people can safely get into and out of crypto, right? So everyone, if you've got Bitcoin, you can trade anywhere. You can move from exchange, you can check prices, you can arbitrage, you can do all that. But that initial piece, how you get in, um, that's a payments piece. And the second piece that a lot of people don't understand that is involved in that is the compliance piece, right? Because if you're a crypto exchange like Binance, um, you're in a couple of jurisdictions, you probably have some sort of licenses in some of those jurisdictions, but you're trying to accept customers from every possible jurisdiction, maximum number of jurisdictions, because that increases your volume, which increases your liquidity, which increases how much money you have. And it's a scale question again. You're not going to have the time to go out and get all those licenses. In my experience, to get even a minimum license, like a money service license in the US, say, it's a state-by-state license. Mm-hmm. You can do them all as a package, but it's probably an eight to 12-month process if you're aggressive, right? So if you're trying to do that and you're trying to accept customers from all those states, that's eight months of your legal team's time. Meanwhile, what's going on in the UK, right? So what Bankster does, we package all that together because we understand those jurisdictions, uh, compliance requirements. We have a very strong compliance team. We've been doing this for a while. So the payments piece is one piece. How credit cards are accepted, we have credit card providers, we're partnered with them. How you can do bank transfers. So the bank piece is one piece, the payments piece. But the second piece is really that regulation and compliance layer. To a certain extent, depending on who we're talking to and how people understand technology, we we also talk about ourselves as a reg tech platform, reg tech, reg tech. So because what we do is we apply that compliance layer. So an exchange can just go, listen, I wanna open up in Australia, how can I accept Australian dollar payments from uh, all my potential users in Australia? They can just come to us and we can just provide them a package service, right? So that allows them to scale and grow their business into multiple markets quicker. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we do. And then the next question was around how does our revenue model work? So when you go on Coinbase and you use your credit card, there's a flat credit card fee, depends on which market, what jurisdiction. But on average, it's usually about 1.99% for Visa and MasterCard. It's less if you use a crypto.com card or something like that. But in general, that's what it is. So there's that fee, which is we don't have anything to do with. That's the, the, the service providers. Then on top of that, there'll, there'll be the spread. So what price you're actually buying at. And there'll there'll be some some fees made in there. So essentially, we're a volume business. 
mm-hmm. in the same way that PayPal, when they first entered the market, when I worked at Wall first, are the same. TransferWise, now called Wise, all these guys are the same. We want big flow and we take a very small piece of every transaction, right? And, and as the transactions increase over time and more and more people use our service, we make more and more money. So very small fee of many, many tra- transactions. If we looked at the future, we want to be the first data, right? You guys know first data in the US, obviously, who do all those like point, point of mm-hmm. sale. We want to be the first data of crypto, right? Yeah. At some point, someone just calls us and they say, I've launched an exchange. I want payments in Japan, China, Australia, uh, the, and Europe, and, and we can just plug in for them, right? That's where we want to be. So a question on that. So... Um... Obviously, if this is a volume business and you want to grow scale, one is obviously you want to increase the number of uh, people who are interacting with this API, right? So the the more yeah. more people that use your thing, the better, the more more volume you have. So I'm actually curious as to why uh, you kind of seem to always be talking about being the payment service provider for exchanges. Uh, I mean, is it not possible to kind of uh, look at other crypto businesses as well so like uh, be a payment on ramp for say something like celsius or Mm. lending or any of the other uh, uh, kind of businesses vertical businesses that are there yeah i mean good question um bit of a softball thank you (laughs) so (laughs) what we're talking about is um yeah i mean we are we talk we're, we're talking to all those guys the reason we work with partners um, we changed our model because we used to do retail websites. We still have those websites. They're still up. They still run, right? They still generate revenue for us. It's a sort of a separate product line okay. selling direct to end users. Um, you know, bitcoin.com.au is still up. The UK one's still up. I think Canada redirects to Australia, but they, they're still active. Yeah. So, so these, just to just to clarify, so these basically kind of like OTCs, right? So the uh, you can just directly buy crypto from these Yeah, websites. so you turn up on the website. You, you, you have to set up an account. We need your ID based on whatever uh-huh. jurisdiction you're in. So you'll submit your passport, a selfie, and then you can use a credit card. The reason we moved more towards the, the partners model, we call it, we're building out essentially the bank, banks and network of partners, is because uh-huh. from a compliance perspective, it's better. Because for, for you to join Binance or Coinbase or any of the big exchanges, you essentially register and submit your ID. So that's one set of hurdles you've already gone through. That, that exchange has your, knows who you are, knows you're John Smith, knows you live at this address. Then when you come to us the first time and only the first time you do a transaction, we double check that and we run it against various databases to make sure you are who you say you are. So we find that there's much, much less chance of fraud for end users if they're going through essentially a two layer system of security. Binance knows who they are. Binance has verified them. We've verified them. So for us, as we add partners that way, if we go out and just chase end users, right, every one person I drive to those websites is one customer who might buy $500 and never come back. If I add an exchange, I add 100,000 customers, a million customers, right? So it just from a scale point of view, it's the faster approach and it's the more secure and compliant approach. So that's the first thing. Your second question was around why not target DeFi platforms? Um, we are, we've got a couple. Um, we've also got wallets. Mm-hmm. We work with Trezor, we work with Edge, you know, anywhere where someone is spending their time looking at crypto, right? Whether it's trading or keeping their crypto on their Trezor, anything like that, right? So if we can provide them an easy way to just plug our API in, so you want to add $200 a Bitcoin a month, you can do that, right? Just bang, there's a the banks a button, push the button, uh, buy the crypto, it's going to arrive in your wallet. 
um, we do that. So it's always we're always adding more partners and we've been really aggressive this this last year so i think pre-ipo we were at about 30 partners now we're at about 70 um so we've more than doubled and our, our plan is to hit sort of somewhere around 140 150 by middle of the middle of the year next year so sort of end of june and then we're going to scale exponentially from there i mean i think um, to be honest, I think we'll probably exceed those numbers, but we're being relatively conservative and just breaking it down to how many we can close in a month. But yeah, I mean, there's a, a network effect, right? Once you've got Binance, OKX, KuCoin, you know, then the next guys just go, you've set up a crypto exchange, you, you go on one of those big players, you see who their payments partners are and you reach out to them. And uh, in the old days, everyone cared about price. They were all like, are you the cheapest? And we're not the cheapest. That's not where we want to position ourselves. We don't want to be a race to the bottom because we spend a significant amount of our money on building out our tech stack and building out our compliance stack. So we, our aim is to be that have the highest conversion because that's what a crypto exchange cares or a DeFi platform cares about, right? For every 100 people that click on that button to buy Bitcoin, you know, if, if 70, 80% of those guys don't complete their transaction, you're wasting potential opportunities, right? So right. we really spend huge amounts of time. We have like whole teams of people who just look at UX and UI, right? Building, making the customer journey as easy as possible, making the payments piece as easy as possible. What we're trying to do is provide, have the highest conversion in the space. And I would say that arguably we're, we're pretty close there. If we're not number one, we're number two, um, depending on which exchange and which market is gonna be variation. But for us, that's really the piece. And the second nice. piece we do is we keep adding more payment methods and I haven't looked at it in the last two months, but we used to have the most payment methods in the space. So the reason for that is going back to what I said before, you've got guys using a credit card. You know, if you're buying $200 worth of Bitcoin and your fees are eight bucks, I don't care, right? I don't really care, right? That's just, that's fine. But if you're buying $2,000 worth of Bitcoin and your fees are 80 bucks, that's that's a bit of a difference. But in credit card, there's that un unmovable piece like one to 1.99 percent right so that's gone mm -hmm. to visa or mastercard if you use local payment methods so use a bank transfer right so in europe there's sofort in germany there's interact in canada in australia um you know there's uh pay id there's a, there's a heap of them we have about 14 payment methods right now um we're always trying to add more and to add a local payment method in a market you need to either may not have to get like a, a license but you normally need to register with a regulator right so you have to have some presence in that market so for us we're trying to be global but we're trying to be the best at local payments we think if we have more payment methods that's more choice for customers and then we have the highest conversion that's the best choice for exchanges and, and crypto business great so uh, moving on to a more broad conversation around the various aspects of crypto regulations uh, let's take a look at some of the most common questions that come to mind when we think of uh, regulating the crypto industry, right? Mm. Uh, so the first question is that of asset versus currency. Bitcoin uh, and cryptocurrencies, uh, are they forms of assets or are they currencies, right? So uh, generally speaking, an asset is something that you may hold on to or trade uh, as its value in the market goes up or down. Uh, on the other hand, a currency is meant to be a medium of exchange, which which means that it's meant to be a means of payment for buying and selling goods and services. So uh, whether Bitcoin and crypto are to be considered as assets or currencies, 
uh, if you ask this question to different people you will get different answers uh, so th- there's still no consensus on that you know i mean you know yeah. even even different governments around the world treat it differently at this point yeah uh, and the second point is you know kind of related to this and that is the aspect of token issuance right you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, um, your experience with icos yeah uh, and and so in the us you you have what is known as the howey test which is used to determine if your tokens can be considered as securities or not and if they do they would come under the purview of the sec right uh so liam I'd, i'd like to know from you after about 6 or 7 years of token issuance happening in the crypto space uh, where do we currently stand right like do we have clarity on these issues about you know whether cryptocurrencies are securities or assets or currencies um yeah i mean that's a good question so i'm going to i'm going to qualify this conversation by by first off i'm not a lawyer right and even if i was a lawyer i'm not a lawyer in every different market you guys are in the us The US is is quite a complicated market, right? And I'm in Australia. Sure. I've been based in. So I'm not a lawyer in all jurisdictions, but I'm going to use my best efforts to answer these questions, right? Sure. Um if you look why is the question about asset or currency relevant? It's actually relevant for two reasons. One, because people like to argue on the internet, that's one. But the second one is because who is going to regulate it, right? If it's an asset, it's probably the CFTC in the US, right? The Commodities mm-hmm. Futures Exchange, right? Or right. association. So they would look at it and they would go, you know, we think this is a commodity, it's an asset, so it's the same as some other thing that we regulate and that's going to determine the regulatory environment. If it's a security, it's under the SEC, right? And if you look at Hong Kong for example, um, you know, the monetary authority for a long time in the HKMA in Hong Kong used to send around circulars to the banks and tell them not to open accounts for for Bitcoin related businesses, right? That that's changed a lot. um but for a long time that was kind of the the regulatory position they didn't really care they just didn't like it at all now it's changing if you now look at the other end at the market itself right icos were essentially they were great i think they were good they probably created a lot of interesting technology but it was it was cheap and easy money right we're in that age of cheap and easy money um you could go to a venture capital if you had a really good idea in a business and you could go and say hey i want to raise 5 million dollars you know plenty of companies out there raised hundreds of millions of dollars that way but some people were a bit resentful about how much equity i have to give up how much control does the venture capital have you know there's plenty of stories about founders being pushed out of their own companies all that sort of stuff you know obviously raising money in that market is also easy because look how much money we work raised from softbank right so you can go out and raise a lot of money but icos was different cuz you were going to the market and you were just saying like all you had to do is have a white paper and a pretty good idea and hype it up right and then you could get 20 million dollars pretty easily right you could raise 100 million mm-hmm. um there's plenty of projects that raise 40 million that don't even really exist anymore then it kind of changed and it went to ieos right and so this was an exchange would list that would do that token issuance right right and the reason was that's supposed to be credible the exchange is now supposed to have done its due diligence to make sure this is not a crazy project um then for a long time uh, for about a year I was at Diginex about 2 3 years ago security tokens were like hot right that was a topic there were conferences there was working groups i sat on a working group you know what can we tokenize there was a couple of really good use cases out of the us you know i think it was from memory it's a couple of years since i thought about it i think it was a st regis right and it was like on the west coast uh, it wasn't california it might have been like montana somewhere like that but they they had like a 400 million dollar development they tokenized 30 million dollars of it and that was successful yeah so you can tokenize anything right you could split we could buy a building together in new york rent it out tokenize it do the shares that way um that's a reit essentially it's a blockchain based reit right yes. real estate investment trust right 
Now, right. what's the value of doing it through blockchain? Well, unless the regulators recognize the tokens movement on the blockchain as a valid transfer of a security or a share, then there's no real difference between a REIT and, and a blockchain-based real estate project, STO. Lots of people were hot on STOs. They saw it as another way that potentially they could go out and raise money. Um, but largely that vision is still unrealized. There's a few good projects around. There's a few good exchanges around. But two, three years ago, STOs were like, any minute now, there's going to be $100 billion of assets flowing under the blockchain. We're not there yet. It hasn't happened. Right. Um, so to circle back to sort of close the point of your question, um, the asset versus currency, I mean, everyone's seen World Series of Poker, right? Everyone's seen poker in movies. If you're sitting at a poker table and you don't have enough money to cover a bet, you can put your car down. Your car's an asset, but you can use it as a currency, right? In certain circumstances, if the other person's prepared to accept it, you can sell your mint condition Spider-Man at, 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 at some situation if the other guy's prepared to pay for it, right? So assets and currency have always been able to change. It's really about liquidity and acceptance. But that's not why regulators are asking. Regulators are asking because they, they want clarity around, do I regulate this? Is this an area where I have to go out and hire two blockchain guys to like, advise me on what the hell's going on? Um, that, that's what's driving it at the regulatory layer, right? They need to clarity right. around that. But at the, the front end, that's kind of an argument like arguing, you know, the masks work or not on social media with anti-vaxxers. Like that's, uh, you know, I can't really tell you. Different people have different opinions. Yeah, but that actually kind of raises like a almost philosophical question, right? It's it's almost like uh, it's like when uh, when the cars were introduced into uh, into a society that was uh, horse-drawn uh, carriages, right? So you had the initial thing where the cars were not allowed into the roads. Uh, then you had uh, they they had to be uh, they had to be a, a person in front waving a red flag and making noise to make sure that people uh, don't get uh, uh, <laughs> don't get mown down yeah, right, by the right. car. So so the the uh, but then ultimately people realize that this is a fundamentally different way of moving and and the kind of I would argue the the concept of a car or an automobile really took off when uh, people realize that, okay, if you create a good road or a flat road, you can go really far distances effortlessly with a car, right? And uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 I'm almost like, okay, why is this? It, it seems almost bureaucratic that, okay, they're concerned about whether this is an asset or a security uh, mm-hmm. or, a, or a currency uh, just to know, okay, who has... Uh, jurisdiction right who who has to spend the money to buy the blockchain guys or uh, hire the mm. blockchain guys or whatever right whereas when when actually the question should be should we new need a new department right do we need a new way of thinking about this and regulating about this yeah i mean that, it's an interesting question but i mean if you look at cars and roads that was where you sort of started you know the roman mm-hmm. empire had roads it's one of the reasons it was very successful right they built roads everywhere right? Mm-hmm. They didn't have cars, but they knew that having good roads allowed you to move your troops around and crush resistance and all that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, if you talk about uh, the regulatory piece, right? We'll talk about the US because I imagine most of your listeners are in the US. And it's an easy, if it's easier, if I bring it down to just one market, right? Right. Most situations where there's a financial crisis is actually where at the back end of that, 
there's a huge velocity of, of new regulation, right? If you go back to the Great Depression, if you go back to the savings and loan crisis, if you go back to sort of the 90s under Clinton, um, there was a lot of regulation. Actually, they, mainly they unrolled a few things like Glass-Steagall, right? Then, then you've got the global financial crisis. You had Elizabeth Warren setting up, you know, that all that all that that association or board or whatever it was that was advising consumers, all that stuff. So regulators, their position is this, right? I have to think about a 60-year-old woman sitting in Ohio. Her husband's passed on. She's got some money. She's getting calls from like penny stock guys. You know, invest in this, put us, send us a check for $5,000, all that. That's the woman they're trying to protect, right? They're trying to protect the average Joe, right? The non-educated, non-accredited investor. So they are, you know, to a certain extent, and I'm, I do not mean this in any negative way, but they have to think about the lowest common denominator right? If you put Kim Kardashian on a token sale and she says, this token is great, I love it, people are going to buy it because people like Kim Kardashian. I mean, it's not my thing, but I can see why people want to put famous people on stuff. But that does not mean the product is any better because Kim Kardashian is going to get paid to do that, right? But that doesn't protect their money. So a regulator is looking at this like, this market is nuts, right? There are mm -hmm. people selling visions of stuff that doesn't exist and they have no history or experience running a company. So I understand the regulator's position. I think it's a really valid position. Does it mean that they're going to try and slow down innovation? Well, that leads back to the part I talked about before. We're always going to have a few of those private companies who are building crazy blockchain-based stuff like oracles and, you know, uh, atomic swaps and all those types of things. Like that's, that's probably never going to be fully publicly listed companies doing that, right? Public companies are always, by their nature, a little bit slower. Yeah, um, but if if there is no clarity, or if they if those innovations, so why do why do those companies actually or those people actually create those kind of innovations? Is because they are kind of having that belief that at some point that's going to become mainstream, right? And uh, mm. my kind of concern essentially is that over time, if there is absolutely no way or there is no uh, path for them to convert, mm. move from that innovation to a realistic or, or or to the real life or to to the public, so to speak, make it public, right? The yeah. interest in doing that innovation and the investment required to do, to, do, to do that innovation would dry up, right? So to take that yeah. question about the Romans, yeah, the Romans built those roads and they became uh, huge and they, they expand their empire, but... Uh, I mean, the innovation of the car did not come or come around. If the if the car had been around at that point, maybe the Romans would still be ruling over us, right? So it's That's true. It's, it's 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 kind of like a uh, juxtaposition of opportunity and and uh, the ability to convert that opportunity into a uh, or to to something that is uh, society changing or real, that affects uh, public, right? Yeah, I mean, this this is a, you know, regulators sort of approach things in a couple of different ways. And I, I, I don't know that many regulators. I've met a few. But, you know, if you look at China, China's just, you know, that's in the news. Cointelegraph, Coindesk, they're all covering it. China's got rid of crypto again. Right. What's this, the sixth or seventh time they've done that? Clearly, it, it hasn't taken. Yeah, but they promise this is, this, is, this is real. And then they've gone after a bunch of other technologies also just to show that they're, they mean business, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, here's the funny thing. Years ago, two, three years ago, I was in Hong Kong and there was a, a competition 
for different blockchain manufacturers. This is around the time that Hedera Hashgraph launched, right? Right, um, right, right. So talking about we're building lots of people were talking about we're going to build a, a blockchain that can scale for millions of transactions and put it under the whole financial system. At that stage, there was a competition in China, and I don't know exactly where it was, somewhere in Shanghai, the University of Technology, I think, or maybe Shenzhen. So do you know who won at that stage? Their, soft, their software solution beat everybody else's in terms of pure number of transactions at that time. It was Ping An, right? Ping An is a massive company. It's like the Citigroup of, of China, right? Ping An has like mm-hmm. a bank, they have insurance, but they are always being very technology, technologically forward. They just like built their own blockchain solution. They were just like, watch our transactions run across these 10 nodes, and they just crushed it. Right. So is, Ping, is the government in China going to shut down Ping An's tech team who are like still playing around with blockchain? I'm sure, right? I'm sure China Life was another massive sort of insurance and asset management. So those companies are still looking at the technology, I think. China's issuing its own central bank-backed digital token, right? Yeah, so they yeah. just for them, it's about control. Right. They just don't like the idea of everyone can buy Bitcoin, offshore it, buy houses in Texas and Australia, right? That's their exactly. way. They're going to have massive capital flight. Exactly. And I, I think that's that's the primary reason. I, I And uh, while we have had a CBDC uh, discussion earlier uh, on this uh, podcast, mm. and we'd been predicting at that time the <laughs> the central bank uh, of China, uh, the public the PBOC is going to come out with a currency uh, mm. just around the corner. Uh, it's still not come out, but uh, I mean, it, it, all the indications are that or the current purge or the current set of uh, regulations are just kind of like uh, setting the ground for that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, but I think like ultimately, this is how I think about it. Money, the traditional finance system is all digital now. Like if you have $100,000 in the bank, the bank doesn't have $100,000 in a box waiting for you to come get it. It's all just Mm -hmm. like entries on a ledger, right? But the systems most banks use, I, I used to work in banking software in one of my first jobs, right? Um, mm-hmm. That system was coded in COBOL, right? Which yes. is like the 1970s. A lot of banks, I don't know if there's that many big tier one banks still working with systems coded in COBOL. Oh, you'll like be back office systems, back office systems are old, man, right? There's yep. a reason why your shares, you use your portfolio, you're settling on to- uh, T plus one, T plus two. Sometimes you send money to your cousin in a different country. It takes three days to get there. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin and all cryptos, that is instantaneous, largely instantaneous, transmission of value anywhere in the world with no middleman, right? That is, the, that is what we are selling, right? There's lots of, you can talk about second layer, uh, smart contracts, but that's what we're selling. This is a new fundamental layer for the entire financial system. Is it going to be Bitcoin? Probably not. Is it going to be central bank-backed digital currencies? I think so, because you can't really keep using technology from the 1960s when all of our money is digital anyway. Right. Right. That, that's the change. And, and yeah, and CBDCs, at least from even from a public, uh, public finance perspective, has a lot of advantages, right? Because it kind of gives the governments a greater reach into their citizens. Uh, yeah, of whether it is, whether it is for surveillance purposes, like China wants to use their CBDC, or whether it is for something as simple as, um, you know, universal basic income, right? So if you, yeah, it's very and- hard to do that with a CBDC, for a central bank to do that, right now would be really hard with fiat yeah but with the cbdc it becomes a lot easier well an interesting one is you look at coronavirus going on right now lots of countries around the world have done like cash like the us has done cash to people's accounts and like largely it went pretty well i think Mm -hmm. but there's lots of stories of like you know couldn't get this guy money 
if everyone had a wallet and they could just do it on a blockchain and they just go bang we're just going to mint two thousand tokens each token's worth a dollar straight into your wallet done right that wallet mm-hmm. is locked to your identity that's your wallet yeah that would be much more efficient right there's downsides to that right india tried to get rid of like certain value notes because that's the notes that run the black economy right so there's a yep. taxation issue in there as well right there's lots of reasons exactly. government want control and this tends to be a pendulum right it swings back and forth mm-hmm. china is at the, the extreme end of control now are they always going to be there probably while she's in power you imagine that's going to be the case um the us is different right and this is one thing that i really wanted to get to on this call but like i know when we were talking in the lead up to having this interview we talked about coinbase right mm-hmm. and the regulatory situation this is a really interesting area because now i think there's a a battle going on for the narrative right the story how people are perceiving it you know six months ago elon musk put money into crypto and then he took his money out and he said tesla will accept crypto and he wouldn't because he was worried about the electricity cost the electricity cost didn't change after elon musk bought those bitcoins oh, elon yeah. musk is a a legit smart dude is an engineer i'm pretty sure he knew about the electricity cost that was public perception right exactly those stories started to come out about the electricity cost you can go on the internet and you can see traditional finance cost exponentially more electricity than bitcoin does right and most bitcoin miners i know are moving towards green energy anyway so there's a battle for the narrative Mm -hmm. is crypto good is it the future is this where we're going or is it like it's bad it's silk road all that stuff coinbase is like a legitimately good actor in the community, right? They, they've done their they've done their listing. They've made heaps of money. They've been around for a while. They've built out their processes. You know, we talked about this in the prep. Like Paul Gruel, uh, who's the, the head legal counsel at, at Coinbase. You know, his compliance pieces and blogs and the stuff they put out is like industry leading, right? In terms of how they communicate to the market about their processes, what they're doing. That is like where that's a benchmark right if it's not a benchmark it's pretty close to where i think a benchmark should be right um their lend product wasn't even live they sent in like a request to the regulator and said like this is pretty much the product we're launching um we'd like you to like let us go and the, the regulator pushed back meanwhile how many DeFi products are essentially doing the exactly the same thing unregulated there's hundreds. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the what what Coinbase is doing is basically what Celsius has been doing for so long, right? Celsius is primarily a lend product. It's, yeah, and Alex Mashinsky, I've seen him at a bunch of conferences. Um, you know, he's selling the vision, right? He's very mm-hmm. good at what he does, right? They're a good pro- a good product, but that is a completely unregulated product versus Coinbase's product, which is essentially a listed public company that has like compliance requirements, reporting requirements. So why is a regulator going after Coinbase? Because Coinbase is very visible and they're growing really fast. And if you want to send a message to the market, you can't find everybody. You just got to pick one or two and hope that that message filters down. The smartest piece of advice I ever got from Hugh Madden, who I mentioned before, he's like, the regulator cannot possibly prosecute every single ICO. And because there's no regulation, there's no black and white. It's, a, it's an area of gray. So what you want to be is you want to be the whitest possible fish, but because there's no regulation, you're probably going to fall afoul of some regulation, right? But if you take best efforts to, you know, have compliance, to do KYC, to make sure that your staff aren't going out and drinking Dom Perignon with the money you raise from investors, all those types of things, right? If you've got good processes in place, good systems, like you're a good actor, it's probably unlikely you're going to run into trouble. 
I mean, you might get an email and they tell you to change some stuff or apply for a license or go through a sandbox. That's all fine, right? If you look at the UK or you look at Hong Kong, who both went the sandbox approach, when the market was hot, the UK had like 50 companies waiting to get in the sandbox. In the end, when the market turned, I think they've issued six licenses the last time I checked. Everyone wanted to be in the sandbox. Then they got in and they were like, oh, actually, this is pretty painful. Yep. Like to actually get this license, we have to do all this stuff and we don't have any people. Um, that's that. That's always going to be a case, right? Lots of people like the idea of being able. To... I, I I personally uh, I I worked in in the UK uh, for a financial company, and uh, I, I've gr- I've got the greatest respect for the UK financial mm. uh, systems. Uh, they 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 seem to uh, have that just the right combination of tech savviness and uh, regulation. Uh, the light touch and the sandbox definitely is a great way of uh, uh, kind of giving the taste of what what you expect to uh, you know companies that are trying to break into the market that don't necessarily understand uh, the the actual meaning of having all these regulations applied yeah i mean the, the uk is a good example hong kong was another one so the hong kong regulator for a long time the sfc is the securities regulator the hkma is a monetary authority like they they didn't they weren't really interested in crypto um but then they were like okay we'll give it a go there's lots of really good people lobbying there like the the fintech association of hong kong you know kingwood mallisons who are a very legitimate law firm there's a, a lawyer there called uh, ursula who I, I know pretty well who's been in the crypto space for years right she mm-hmm. was an advisor on the token so i did you know she lobbies she goes to sfc events she talks to people she gets out there talks about how this is going to revolutionize finance and eventually they set up a sandbox and i'm sure that they probably had a crap load of applications excuse my language but at the end you know bc group the company i used to work for that used to be called anx they were one of the few guys who came out the back end with the license right because they complied and they did the hard work and if you're not prepared to comply and do the hard work then like you're never going to be regulated and you're going to get in trouble i I was laughing the other day coindesk ran an article about binance right Mm -hmm. like I, i like binance they're my number one trading platform um but they've been decentralized they don't even have an office yep right they essentially were playing regulatory arbitrage for a long time, right? They were in China, the China cracked down, then they sort of set up in Japan, but they didn't really have a license. And eventually the Japanese regulator sent them a, sent them a letter. Then they were in Singapore. Then they had a, f- a bit of money because the market was picking up and their trading volumes were good. So they were in Malta, they were in Jersey, they were in Europe, they were in Australia. They just went and they just went like, we'll run and we'll just grab whatever regulations we can, registrations we can. You know, they started the whole you guys probably remember, like Malta was hot right. in 2019. Mm-hmm. Everyone was like, Malta's, this is going to get us into the European Union because Malta's in the European Union. And these guys are like, let's just go. The European Union, actually, the ECB, the European Commission for Banking or whatever, or the EBC, whatever it is, but the European Banking Corporation Commission, right. they went to Malta and they were like, like, what are you doing? Like, you're selling passports. Yeah. That's a separate issue. But you're also allowing all these crypto companies access to our banking network. Like, we will kick you out. Suddenly, Malta's not the hot place to register a crypto asset management firm, right? Yep. Before that, it was Gibraltar. Gibraltar was first. I've met the Minister of Finance from Gibraltar. They used to go to blockchain conferences. They're not very active anymore, right? I'm assuming they're still going. But jurisdictions sort of go, we're going to be responsive to this new technology. We're going to let them in. But you can only move the market ahead so fast because regulators, if they don't understand something, they will dig their heels in. So I think the Coinbase approach and that approach and sandbox approach, that's really good. That's a sign of, that's an optimistic sign, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully 
Coinbase and the SEC can work it out. That'd be awesome, right? They come back, they say change these three things and they get that through. That'd be great. If Coinbase wins, I would laugh all the way to the bank. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe there was this uh, update where they basically, Coinbase decided to uh, pull back the lending product for now mm-hmm. and they're in conversations with the SEC. I think uh, they want to try and clarify that aspect. So maybe hopefully, yeah, like I'm with you, right? If they, if they, if, if an outcome of this is that there's a clear stance on what these products should be and how they should be uh, rolled out. That's that's a win. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I 100% agree. I mean, I feel, I, I think back to the globe, like I'm hopelessly optimistic about this area, right? Blockchain technology as a whole. I think it, the financial opportunities for people who don't know how to get into accredited investor status, they can earn interest on their Bitcoin, whatever. This is like amazing. If this mass markets, like it will be really good for people. Um, but if you look at the global financial crisis, which was largely caused by like investment bankers creating like really crappy instruments and then selling them to German asset management companies who didn't really understand them, um, mm-hmm. you know, how many guys went to jail? Not very many. Meanwhile, you've got BitMEX, right? Which was, you know, in 2019, BitMEX was the place if you're in Asia to do like a hundred times leverage, right? I got yeah. wrecked on BitMEX. I know lots of people who got wrecked on BitMEX. Um, <laughs> Arthur Hayes, who's one of the founders of that company, right? Those guys got really badly done over, right? They're like, they're in conversations with the regulator. They've had to give up their business, you know, but Arthur was a lightning rod of a figure. Like he was at consensus in, I can't remember which year, but like he he bought like a brand new suit and like hired a Lamborghini and had it parked out the front. Like he was controversial. And so he <laughs> sort of, you know, the, the the squeaky door gets a grease type thing, right? But I, no one went to jail in the global financial crisis, but this one guy or these three guys running a crypto exchange are getting like the books run at them. And you just go like, okay, they paid the fine, right? <laughs> so now they should be okay. But the market, we need regulations. So you know you run a crypto exchange. These are the laws you have to comply to. Um, yeah. This is what you got to do. And therefore, you might get a fine, but it'll be the same fine as HSBC. Does HSBC not get in trouble for laundering like billions of dollars of drug money? Like, oh, just being yeah. regulated. Yeah. I, I just saw the other day, I think yesterday, Wells Fargo settled yet another fraud settlement, uh, 37 million or something. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like, uh, these, the, the big ones, at least they do, they, they consider it cost of doing business. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, right? Like, if you're really smart, you're a quant or an analyst or one of these things and you go to a good school and you're super smart like you're not most of those guys don't go and work for the regulator Mm -hmm. right unless they have some crazy sense of public service they go and work at goldman or they go and work for blackrock or they're like working in private equity or or venture cap like the smart people are there the regulators have to play catch up and they probably don't have the resources right so there's always going to be like the cutting edge of finance where you can do crazy shit that's the same as that 10 15 percent we talked about in the crypto market, right? Mm-hmm. But what we hope is if you're putting this stuff on a blockchain, these transactions, you know, it's all on a blockchain, there's an immutable record, you can't shred the blockchain, right? As a fundamental technology, it's going to make a lot of improvements in the financial sector. Which which is actually, ironically, the reason why I think regulators should actually embrace this more, you know? <laughs> mm. It's like they, they they have so much trouble and uh, they have to go through so many hoops and in often cases, they don't even get the evidence um, when when they have to persecute the large players and the, you know, even even with things like money laundering, right? It's so, so hard uh, and they have to play catch up all the time. Whereas if they actually 
did look at this in an open mind and kind of almost like go the China road with CBDC or at, at least kind of bring, bring this kind of underlying technology into the digital infrastructure of finance. I, I have a feeling that mm. a, it becomes a lot harder for, uh, you know, shenanigans to happen because it's, it's yeah. immediately visible. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, if you look at the, so the, the classic story that everyone brings up is Bitcoin. You know, they don't say it so much anymore, but Bitcoin's like for drug dealers on the dark web, right? So they yeah. talk about Silk Road. Ross Ulbricht, Dread Pirate Roberts, like you read that story, it reads like a Hollywood movie. Like the FBI agents were stealing Bitcoin. Like it was bad. I, I don't think he should have gone to jail, right? Yeah. And if you look at like Elliptic and Chainalysis, like the two two of the, the two main systems that allow you to track the transactions of Bitcoin, right? Right. Those two systems are used by the FBI, the DEA, all that sort of stuff. In, in the time that we've finally got to $2 trillion market cap in crypto, how much money, like all the drug dealers in South America who are like murdering people in Mexico, like that's a cash business. They're not doing right. Bitcoin, right? No. Crime <laughs> is happening way more in cash, way more in cash, right? But they look at Bitcoin. I, I honestly believe they've they've already uh, they've already un- cottoned on to the fact that it's much harder and it's traceable on Bitcoin. And I don't think they're going on Bitcoin anymore. Uh, in fact, uh, it's a great point you brought up, Liam. Uh, in fact, there there was an article recently about the amount of Bitcoin that uh, all the uh, regulatory agents, I mean the FBI and all these police agencies, actually hold, and yeah. they're they're actually having it, <laughs> uh, uh, having a realization that hey, okay, we uh, we got all these Bitcoin compute these computers with Bitcoin wallets in them, and suddenly they're now worth ten uh, x, twenty x, what they were worth, and 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 they they're trying to. Um, liquidate them right so it's uh it's it's definitely uh, uh a very ironic kind of a thing uh when yes. you when, when you see what 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 actually the uh, what actually is the reality of it and what the narrative of of bitcoin is yeah i mean it's interesting i think regulators are getting much smarter like i remember when i was first in the space they were just like i have no idea what this stuff is and i think there's a comfort level developing right i think some of these, like the CFTC, the SEC, these guys, like they, they've got a, a pretty good idea. And I think it behooves us in the industry to just keep trying to educate them, right? So I think movements like global digital finance or the other one is the cryptocurrency, uh, the Crypto Compliance Collective. There's a couple of these groups around, like industry associations. Some of them are largely just social groups, but the good ones who are producing like good stuff and trying to influence regulation and get regulation moved, that type of stuff, like that, hopefully we're going to meet in the middle, right? Regulators will start to go, okay, yeah, well, like we can track Bitcoin from like the moment it's minted, mm-hmm. it's mined, right? Until through its entire life cycle, all we need is computing power, right? If they go to exchanges and say, we just need you to run chain analysis on your platform. And then once every six months, we're going to turn up and just say, hey, can we just pull some data? As long as it's like they don't breach privacy, right? If they've got an actual, if it's just a reporting requirement, I think that's 100% good. And I think most exchanges would do that. You look at Binance now, like CZ was in Coindesk the other day and he's going like, I think we're going to set up a head office, right? Because he's (laughs) getting stung by a lot of regulators because they're not comfortable with the fully decentralized model. And like, what else is he going to say? He's got a multi-billion dollar business. If he says, no, we're going to stay decentralized and we're going to start supporting more like privacy coins, like Zencash, that's not going to go well for him. 
right? He's yeah, on like that, regulator's radar. Absolutely. So we want to meet in the middle. We want to meet in the middle. We really do. Right. So just in the interest of, that's been a great conversation, but I just wanted to ask one last question. So just to kind of wrap it up. So how do you actually see this kind of working? So you kind of put it uh, over here that, okay, we need to meet in the middle and that regulations, regulators are getting a little bit more uh, savvy about this. Uh, mm. But there's also the fundamental disconnect, right, between uh, the blockchain way of thinking, the philosophy of blockchain, how how money or how um, uh, assets are treated versus the traditional fiat and uh, uh, you know uh, minting money and all of that is there there's a there's a fundamental uh, difference or disconnect between the two types of systems how do you actually see that actually playing out in terms of uh, how regulations uh, or regulators would deal with it do you think that there is a need for new laws or a new framework being built and maybe a new uh, department uh, for just handling regulations or do you think it is uh, something that uh, the SEC or the existing uh, uh, regulatory framework and the existing regulators can kind of evolve their thinking and uh, kind of build towards? Yeah, I mean, I think to summarize that, sure, I know that I talk a lot, but let's say I think there's three options on the table right now, three ways it could go. One, is that it gets totally eaten by the government, right? So the government just only gets pushes Bitcoin out or keeps it quite small, and they do central government, central bank backed digital currencies, right? right. Uh-huh. Which is the China model. Mm-hmm. Or there's the extreme end, and this this is going out to Dwee. Dwee, who's one of our a guy, one of my colleagues at Banksa. You know, he says his position is is the extreme crypto one. We should separate money from governments the same way we've separated religion from church and state right? Money mm-hmm. is money. Governments obviously want to control money. And th- th- that's been a historical model. But there's no reason that that has to be the case longer term, right? This is money. I've got value. I want something you have. Let's just exchange the value. If there was a technology piece that everyone could trust, that would be an interesting area. That's kind of like the El Salvador model, right? Like El Salvador has kind of embraced Bitcoin as a currency. Uh, well, I think the El Salvador model is driven a little bit by desperation because their currency is not doing very well, right? But I, I, I'm optimistic about it. But I think, you know, the crazy one would just be like Bitcoin becomes the world dominant currency. It, it's, I can see it's not going to happen, but that's the that's like set money free type approach. Then you've got something in the middle, which is, you know, Bitcoin's still around. Maybe it gets to $100,000. At that point, there's going to be a lot of new market entrance and we're going to be clo- getting pretty close to mass adoption. Right. Um, I put together an article a couple of weeks ago, uh, sort of guest post around, you know, people used to talk about when are the institutions going to come? Because when the institutions come into crypto, like that's going to be the boom time. The thing is, the institutions are all here. Fidelity is investing. Half a dozen big investment banks are trying to do Bitcoin ETFs. Mm -hmm. Some of that's marketing because they know that people might want to put a little bit of money in and and Bitcoin's a good name, shows you're tech savvy. But some of these changes will be long lasting, right? Um, so the institutions are here, right? Lots of little Bitcoin companies and Cypher Trace, they get getting bought out. You know, one of our competitors at Banksa, Simplex, got bought out by a payments company, mm-hmm. right? I think, to be honest, it'll make them less, less innovative, but, but that's the market. Like the, crypto is here to stay. What, what, what that looks like, I, I can't 100% tell you, but I hope it's that middle path. I hope we don't go the central banks own everything. And I'm not sure about the Wild West. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle would be good, right? I think would be good. Right. 
That's great. Um, so yeah, uh, KK, want to take it away? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I think I think we have covered uh, most of what we wanted to talk about with regard to the broader regulations. One one quick uh, last question. I know there's already been a last question, but this thing keeps coming up. So what do you think of a Bitcoin ETF? Uh, is it going to happen? Not going to happen? Is it going to affect anything? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think it'll happen. I mean, it, it, it does depend to a certain extent on the market. If the price of Bitcoin stays where it is or, you know, it's funny because we never really came out of the bull market. There was a slight pullback and now the price is sort of back up. So this is actually a little bit unfamiliar territory. If the price stays where it is or it goes up, then yes, there'll be a Bitcoin ETF, I think, pretty soon. Um, they may, I, I don't know what it will look like in final form. It might be watered down from some of the proposals. It might be like a diversified basket that has some Bitcoin component. I don't know. But I think it will come. If the market pulls back and we have a price drop, which traditionally Bitcoin sort of goes through roughly three-year cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, if that happens again, I think that we're probably a, a couple of years away, maybe 18 months, right? Because I think if there's less interest, there's less motivation to, to push the regulators to get that thing across the line. But uh, I think if the price stays where it is, I think we'll definitely see them. And I think once it falls in one responsible jurisdiction, whether that's the US or Europe, once there's like a significant one that you can put a little bit of your 401k in or in Australia, we call it superannuation, but same thing, right? Your pension, right? If you can put 5% of that into crypto without having to like jump through hoops and find a specialist provider, if you can do that through a really big entity, like that is mass adoption. Right. Well, uh, I just want to say, Liam, you know, this has been an absolutely great conversation. Uh, you know, we, we had actually been wanting to do an episode on crypto regulations for quite a while. And uh, one of the things that we saw was that, you know, although there was a lot of development activity happening with multiple projects in the blockchain and crypto space, uh, regulations were always this blurry space, you know, where companies or even crypto users, uh, for that matter, you know, had a lot of uncertainty to deal with, right? So uh, everything from, you know, where to incorporate your business to which regions customers to offer your services to, uh, and uh, I just think that, you know, that, that broader conversation around crypto regulations uh, today is more important, you know, than ever before. So, so yes, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of rules and regulations finally shape up for blockchain and crypto. Yeah, please don't, please don't call this your, your regulation. Uh, I mean, there's so many really smart people. If you wanted to talk about, I mean, maybe you could reach out to, to Paul, I mentioned before from Coinbase. You know, there's Catherine Wu, who's a lawyer who uh, I think still at Masari, right? Like maybe she's a, you know, there's a lot of really smart lawyers who touch this space a lot, right? In the US and who could probably give you a much better visualization. But as an overview, I hope I provided some sort of context for your listeners, for guys who don't really have a a frame of reference. I think um, I've dropped enough names in there that people can go off and do their own online searches to, to start to find these people. But definitely it's like a vibrant space, the innovation piece around regulation. I think it's a really interesting area. Sure. No, I, I think this was absolutely great. And uh, once again, Liam, you know, uh, we want to thank you for giving us your time. And uh, we'll hope to have you again on the show sometime in the future to talk about Bankstar's progress and mm. uh, maybe have a discussion again you know, as the industry evolves going forward. Yeah, that'd be great. Listen, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciated this. It was really good. All right, folks, that was Liam Bussell from Bankstar. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And also, you can learn more about us on bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.